Let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your kindness to us, laying this year out before us, and ask us each day to grow in your grace, and we'd ask that you would point us that direction in your word this morning. In your Son's name, amen. Well, 2 Corinthians 3, favorite passage of mine, and the reason it was on my mind was during the course of the week, and this happens, you end up quoting certain passages to different people. And when you quote the same passage to different people a few times during the week, it's on your mind at least. Not saying it's providentially guiding you to make a sermon out of it, but at least it's on your mind. You've been thinking along those threads. But as I thought, and it was the last verses, a couple verses of uh, chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. Um, your mind goes, okay, what's the surrounding context? What's it about? Would make sure it's about what you were quoting the passage in reference to. Found out it was about you know, a subject I had been talking to various people about. And then I wanted to go back and say, okay, how do you, how do you preface this? How do you step into it? Because I step right into the middle of his argument in verse 12 of chapter 3. And I'm not going to keep moving back in Corinthians to get all of the argument in because, well, as you know, the sermon never gets shorter, but it can get longer. So as I was thinking of the theme of what we're dealing with this morning, and it struck me that out of, I have a couple of quotes here from Luke, um, Luke 11 and Luke 17, on the left-hand side. He was praying at a certain place, and when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Give us each our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Obviously not the version you're familiar with, that's uh, the Matthew version. Um, and it, it kind of registers a little bit differently, it hits you a little differently, because he even says, he doesn't say pray then like this, he, he says say this. Well, we're not about the Lord's Prayer this morning, um, and I'm grateful, somewhat grateful, that as I read through the Lord's Prayer, that the, the church did not all start chorusing in out of because you all were raised to automatically say the Pledge of Allegiance of the Lord's Prayer. You know, that, um, I have it here because of that phrase I bolded, Thy Kingdom Come. It's in both accounts of the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's lacking from this version. But thy kingdom come. I mean, if there's ever a prayer that all Christians, our Lord, told us to pray this, or like this, and he tells you to pray that the Lord's kingdom would come. And we have spent 2,000 years messing with that. Somehow, messing with it. Luke 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, 
Nor will they say, Lo, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now the word there, midst, many translations were checked with Richmond Lattimore. I checked with, there's all sorts of, looked it up in the Greek. The word is entos, meaning uh, inside. Midst is sort of a softening of the blow. Because very few Christians in the history of Christianity have been happy with the kingdom of God inside of you. They would rather have it be a little more room to breathe, a little more in the midst of it, you know? Kind of out here, Jesus is in the midst of you or something. Now, you know, I'm not going to argue with them about their translation of the passage. Whatever you think it means, it doesn't mean this, the next verse. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Lo there, or lo here. Do not go. Do not follow them. What we have to remember as Christians, this is a conversation we have been in for a, a number of evenings uh, or various things, talking to various people, trying to deal with why Christians, Christian families fade away you know, within a generation. It's not passing on generation to generation. Why Christian churches go all liberal and rot on the vine. Why Christianity just looks silly after 1,500 years. I mean, just men in funny hats with gold-encrusted shepherd's crooks. You know, you got, what's, what's wrong with this picture? A lot of things are wrong with the picture. It's important for us to know what it is we're praying for when we say, thy kingdom come. Somehow the kingdom of God is inside you, or if you want to push it, in the midst of you. Somehow, your desire to see the days of Jesus, you know, you're going to wish, ever talk with your friends, you know, kind of a Christian version of winning a lottery conversation, wouldn't it be great to be living at Jesus' time, get to chat with Jesus? Yeah, so many people really agreed with Jesus so much of the time. You know, would you really be one of those difficult, super serial Pharisees that couldn't really understand what he was saying. But we all want, you know, wouldn't it be great to live in the time of the apostles, the time of the Christ? You'll want to see it, you will not see it, and so someone will promise you it. They will say, lo there, lo here, don't follow it. Down through the history of the church, there's been a a great desire to build the kingdom, and I blame Augustine for this, his city of God, largely shaped the mind of people about how they were going to view the church visible, the church invisible, the things of God, the things of man, on the earth, and sort of all bets were off at a certain point. Not just Augustine, but the falling Roman Empire, the development of the legalization of Christianity under Constantine, and Edict of Toleration. All sorts of things kind of went wrong for us at once. We got power. 
And when you get power, you want, you want to build a temple to Jesus. Now let's go look at 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not see the end of the fading splendor. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. There is a veil that Moses put on his face because he had been in the presence of God on Mount Sinai and in the tabernacle, and his face shone. Michelangelo got it wrong in his statue of, of Moses, which is a tr tremendous statue of seated Moses. Uh, but the translations, I think, in the Vulgate suggest it, not horns of horns of light. And so he like like fawn horns on Moses because that was the translation at the time that wasn't the idea he, he was sunburned he was glowing he was and Paul lets you know that a veil was put on Moses in the Old Testament talks about it not startling the people and here he lets you know that this was a fading thing and to avoid from seeing the fade the veil was on. And that veil remains. Because do you realize that we have done the same thing to Christianity? Man's visitating with Christ on, in that first century, hearing the gospel preached, believing it, the apostles being appointed, set out in the world, people being converted. And then, because of something, we established a kind of church relationship a kind of earthly glory, we followed someone that said, lo here. Here is the kingdom. Let's make this the kingdom. This is, this is apostolic. This has, all, this has all the important people. We manage, even though we have the veil lifted off of Moses, we have seen the fading splendor that the earlier covenant had. The new covenant is a different kind of thing. But others spend their time with a veil over themselves, over what they're looking at, claiming the kingdom of God, the visible church. The history of Christendom is somehow this thing that no matter how rotten it is. Now, Look, I'm a pastor in North Idaho, and I counted up the number of people here. And no matter how you count and who you count, even if you count the little babies, it's not many. So I realize that this, this is, uh, you say, who is he to be tirading on about that? But I'm going to do it anyway, because it's my job. You can't afford to read Christian history. Believe me, you'll want to cut your wrists if you do. Okay? Just warning. The institution, now I believe, 
And I have read about and noted in history some wonderful Christians. Wonderful individual Christians. Maybe some individually very small ministries. But as soon as the kingdom of God starts to be built out of whatever ministry, you start having the splendor fade. You don't want to have a veil. The church tells you, keep the veil on. Keep looking at your, now whatever theological spin you're from, they want you to look back with a heightened view of Luther's value or or Spurgeon's value or whatever, C.S. Lewis's value, whatever you're into. It's through Jesus Christ that the veil is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds, but when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The idea of a fading splendor to an old covenant, unseen by you, you will be able to see it if you look to Christ. If you turn to the Lord, the the Lord choice is not a choice for a different earthly kingdom made out of spiritual things, but a different kind of choice altogether. Because the kingdom of God is within you. Because the kingdom of God is inside of you, the way you view the earthly kingdoms, the law of Moses, the tabernacle, the temple, the rituals, the rites, we set all those aside because it was Judaism and we replaced it with the temples, the rites, the priesthoods of the Christian church. We still have the veil on. We want to look as, because, and the veil needs to be there because otherwise we would see very quickly the fading splendor. The difference, the superiority, and if you get a chance to read through the book of Hebrews, where he goes, the writer of Hebrews goes to great lengths to convince us of the superiority of the new covenant. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, because remember, you turn to that Lord, the veil is lifted. And he defines that the Spirit of the the Lord is the Lord you are turning to, and there's freedom residing there. Not only is the veil lifted, but freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, And some translations say reflecting the glory of the Lord. Are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He lets you know that if you turn to the Lord who is the Spirit. There is a liberating quality. The veil being lifted. And that act of beholding Jesus Christ incrementally changes you in glory to match that Christ. That's what happens. That's where the kingdom sits. Now, our desire to have something that we see, even if it's through veiled eyes, um, did you ever as a kid pretend 
I mean, did you have a soul? Did you look at things and wish? I was telling somebody the other day about, I used to lie on the couch upside down, off the edge of the couch, and look at the room upside down. And I wanted to live in that house, which was really interesting. You had to step over things to get into the next room. And, and, and you had to, then if you really wanted to get into the daydream equality, you'd squint, right? Now why would you squint? Because that softens all the corrective realities. You veil your eyes a little bit. It's called beer goggles in other circumstances. When you squint, you don't see the realities. You veil your sight so that you can imagine it as something more. What do you use to veil Christianity? Well, let's just say Christendom, because I look at Christianity, the kingdom of God within you, as the thing, the religion, the actual, the Christ and his effect on you and each of us individually. And we all, it says, with unveiled face. But you have to recognize what the veils are. Why you wear them. It improves the imagination of religion. Because that's what you're doing. You're not living. You know, the guys in the Apostles' Day and they're walking around downtown, whatever, in whatever Apostles' garb they wear. You know, the person who is the modern who wears some religious vestment that looks like an apostle's wear. They're not wearing it because it's their daily garb. They're wearing it because it kind of looks like an apostle. In their imaginative, their nostalgia, their tradition. We talk about how many years ago it was. Because you know how it makes you feel when Lord of the Rings tells you this was a long time ago. And you go, oh, really? It's squinting. Uh, yeah, let's pretend that Boromir is real. Let's, you don't want to be Christian dorks, is what I'm getting at here, where you have an imagined, fake kingdom of God and all the Christians wandering around squinting through tradition, through nostalgia, through the claims of antiquity. Jesus Christ hasn't become more true because it has been 2,000 years. Remember, the Apostle Paul had no ability to look at Jesus Christ and the claims of the gospel and treat it with any reverence because it was really old. It was 10 years old. Brand new religion. We use all these things. Oh, I, I like tradition. In my nation, in my family. I don't like it in my church. You say, we got pews, man. I know, we got pews. Pointy windows. It was an accident. But we have to face Christ. The whole idea is to be changed into his likeness. Therefore, verse, four, verse 1 of chapter 4, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Because one of the, let me just tell you, well, I've got to warn you about this kind of approach to your Christian life. It's not, you, will, you had better find the satisfaction in Jesus Christ because there is no other satisfaction in it. Really, honest. 
you don't get to have all the cool things the veiled religious people get. Again, they get gold-encrusted hats. I don't have a gold-encrusted hat. They have choirs singing beautifully behind. I don't have a choir. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with a gold-encrusted hat or a choir if it's not your veil. I think it'd be great to have a gold-encrusted hat if you were king. It's called a crown. We have this ministry from God. This is what we're conveying to people. That a liberated, unveiled religion that places the kingdom of God exactly where our Lord said it was placed. It is you, your sins, your filling of the Holy Spirit, you being redeemed, and you being, each of us, beholding the glory of the Lord, are changed into his likeness. Each of us are made like Jesus Christ. That is what the religion is. That's the ministry. And it says we do not lose heart, because frankly, that can be a heartless ministry. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. You don't mean to tell me that sometime in church history someone has done those things for Jesus. Why, yes, they have. More often than they don't. Back in the old days when they had busing programs for churches, they'd tape dollar, $10 bills in the bottoms of certain seats in the bus so that if you got on the bus you might make 10 bucks but you had to go to church people who lied in our years well Mark remembers this our years of uh, Christian bookstore ministry we'd run across various outright lies that the author would publish and you'd write them and say you know this is a lie and they would say yes but it's good to lie for the kingdom. There are people who believe that. Paul says, no, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded, cunning, tampering ways. Our, our ministry, since it is directly at the you, directly at the person, you have to at least have the veil removed from your teachability so that an open statement but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to every man's conscience to the sight of God. Are you willing to be told what is true? Are you ready to hear what is true? Or do you really need to have the squints on? The sunglasses, the rosy colored glasses, whatever it is you're wearing, enough beer to make the religion you're being offered attractive to you. But those, not only, then you wonder why, after dragging your kids to that church, I hope it's not this church, dragging your kids to this church, there you are, the twins back there, staring vacantly, wondering, what's all this Christianity about? It better look like the real thing. It better look like the gospel that Jesus Christ gave us, the kingdom he gave us within ourselves, or it's going to look like a fading 
You know how churches can be. They're always about five years, ten years behind the world. They're imitating the world. The world gives up on the thing. I could still walk into a Methodist church and find a burlap banner with a descending dove on it that says Maranatha. When did that come on? 1970? Because Christians are always behind. We're just, we're pros at fading splendor. We're never cutting edge. It was like we're practiced at this. And then we wonder why, why are our kids disillusioned? What's that famous uh, Hank Hill line about Christian rock that it's not good for Christianity and it not very good for rock and roll, something along those lines. Uh, um, we are we wonder when we pick a fading motif and any time you step from the spiritual into the material to make your kingdom material it like entropy will declare to you it is going to be rotting the part of this church that bought this building in 2007 we want to keep you far from believing that this building has anything to do with it because as soon as we stepped into it it already had a hundred and some odd years ahead of us rotting it is already going the way of all flesh so we can't have it as part of our actual religion are you ready for an open statement of the truth about what Christianity is and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. There are people who are out there in the world who will never say because they're permanently veiled. They have looked at something that they say, it had splendor once, I've cut, put the veil over my eyes, I have different methods of creating the veil so I can always look at it as if it were important even though everyone else knows it's not anymore. They will never see Sometimes they're in the Christian church. Sometimes they could be restored to repentance, but many times they cannot be. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. To remind you what you're looking at, Jesus Christ is not only the Spirit, not only is there freedom in him, he is the likeness of God. He says to his disciples, you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If I look at Christ, because he lets you know that someday you'll desire to see the says of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Jesus Christ died, was buried, raised, ascended into heaven in glory. You don't get to see Jesus in the physical form. But it lets us know that what we have, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What are you looking at? Are you looking at this, the sinless atonement of Jesus Christ for our sins on the cross? Or are you looking at whatever your doctrine has done for the last 200 years? Are you spending your time in the people who are supporting your whatever doctrinal choices you make. And that's the benefit of this church since there's no real statement of faith yet and no membership you can get to it 
who knows what your doctrine is, but I too hope that your life is pointed at the glory of the gospel of Christ. For what we preach is not ourselves. That, that, that line there alone ought to eviscerate the history of the church worshipers. Here is the apostle going, we're not preaching the apostolic church. We're preaching Christ. We're not preaching ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He's not saying we're not here. He's saying we're just a collateral benefit. But a lot of people get all up in it. If they're not into the apostles, they're into the, what they call the apostolic fathers. Making sure that the visible church can get a real wide footprint to fade aggressively over 2,000 years. Paul says we don't preach that. We preach Christ as Lord. Because each of us, beholding the glory of the Lord, reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness. If we have him preached as Lord, we know to whom we bow. We know when we read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when we see what his ministry is, we bow the knee to his ministry, because he is Lord. For it is the God, verse 6, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The God that called worlds into being and said, Let there be light. That God in this creation has done so. Where is the kingdom of God? Inside you. In your hearts, he has called light into being. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He said, this is where it's occurring. It's not occurring in the pews. It's not occurring in the programs. It's not occurring in the dominance of a particular theology over another particular theology. It is God creating himself in you. But you have to be without veil. Because when you're squinting, the guy with the gold-encrusted hat and the shepherd's crook looks holy to you. When you're squinting, St. Francis of Assisi looks holy to you. When you're squinting, you don't see the mistakes of your denomination in history. When you start finding the men that you always held in high esteem were burning other believers, you go, hmm, that shouldn't have happened, I guess. How did it happen? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Parse that out for yourself. We're not going to do this morning, but it needs to be parsed. It needs to be handled. God creating, shining in your heart a light of knowing God's glory as it resides in Christ, as you look at him, at the face of Christ. That's what we've been allowed to see to begin with. Moses was running around with just shining from reflected glory. 
He didn't even see the face of God because he requested, remember on the mountain? He requested to see the face of God. And the Lord said, you don't, nobody sees my glory because no one sees my face and lives. But I will cover you, put you in a cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand. Remember the hymn? And I'll let my glory pass before you, but I'll only let you see my back. That's the level of splendor that Moses could be allowed to handle. And that left him glowing, though fading. The light that we've been called into, we haven't been limited from seeing. He says, He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We are allowed not to see it through a veil, not to guess what it would be like, not to be denied it, but to be given it in Jesus Christ. The glory of God is in the face of Christ. And you're allowed to look at it, and we're running around looking at Christian history, tradition, nostalgia, antiquity. Not him. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, here's a problem. We're, it's, I told, warned you about this earlier. It is not very satisfying to have this cheap excuse for a pulpit. Now, this is what pastors think about. This was the pulpit that was here. I think. Yeah. I don't like it. There are some pretty neat pulpits out there. I want one with a staircase that goes up to about here. And another one on the other side for the lectern, so you can read, if you read the scripture, you get to walk up some stairs too. Why, why don't we have the staircase? Uh, we're broke, which you can consider fixing on your way out. It's a new year, make a resolution. When you live a life that is about the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, you don't get the benefits of the kingdom for God. There's a, there's a kingdom of God that is within you. The kingdom for God are all the little kingdoms we build for him. They're competitive, because it's like Pepsi and Coca-Cola. But Paul's telling you, you know, there's a real benefit to the kind of Christianity that we kind of don't want. We want to be in the cool group. We want to be in the group that is really successful. This room would hold 150 people. What do you got? 25? I don't know. Maybe 30. And we've had bigger Sundays, yeah. But nowhere close, 140. You know, I've heard of churches, you know, this is just a myth, who have two services. Because there's so many people. Kind of exciting. People know the name of the church. You know they know our name because we're the first in the phone book. Because All Souls begins with an A. It was an accident. We didn't mean that. That's about the notoriety we have. And I'm not talking about the notoriety of this church, but your own 
kingdom of God experience in you. You have got to be ready to say with Paul, I have this treasure in an earthen vessel. The benefit to that is to show the transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. And so we go, oh, no, no, Jesus, let's take care of that. Let's make sure that a lot of the transcendent power is really shown to be me. Shown to be us. Shown to be our version of things. See, you don't understand what Christ has done in us. The real religion that is different from the religions of old-timey days are always trying to prove that they got the transcendent power by how much transcendent power they show. And God says, you get to be in earthen vessels. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body of death, in the body, the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. The sheer absence of the veiled, fading Christendom is the salvation of the reality of your, your actual kingdomness. You get to show Jesus Christ because you go, not only do I see the real thing better, but I'm able to do this thing better. I'm able to stand in for Christ more clearly because his transcendent power is best shown in absolute failure in everything else. Failure to the point of being killed. Now, I think we'd all believe, no matter what theological, ecclesiological viewpoints you come from, because there's a lot of people that disagree with me on this, and I don't have a problem with that. I mean, knock yourself out. But we all agree that we're here to show the transcendent power of God. And you have to ask, how are you going to show the transcendent power of God? And you have really two choices. Either, either God changed you wonderfully, that's how you show the transcendent power of God, that somehow the experience with Jesus Christ and his gospel fixed you in a way that people can't imagine. And they want to be fixed. Or you have a great marketing campaign, which generally requires you have a lot of people. You've got to have a certain number of census-oriented success. Census translates to, because you need money to buy the advertising, the tithing, and of course, you've got to occupy yourself with wars against those who have a slightly different uh, product, who have built their kingdom for God just a little bit differently than yours, because Christians rarely play well with other Christians when they're operating in the, um, the visible transcendence. Let's show you... I mean, I think Michelangelo was the greatest artist to ever be born. Personally, that's just a, you don't have to agree with me there. But for heaven's sake, think of those sculptures, think of the Pieta, think of the David, think of the Sistine ceiling, think of the Vatican. 
And I abhor the Vatican and everything it stands for, but my heavens, what a dang good building. That's Michelangelo. That's the level of things, that's the level things get to. You hire the best. You got a lot of money to spend. You got glory to represent. And what does Paul offer you? Something I mentioned a few months ago in a sermon. It's death and glory. That's what you get. I say death and glory. I think one of the uh, Lancer Brigades, I remember running across this in my misspent historic reading, one of the Lancer Brigades, British, uh, uh, like Afghanistan, back in the Victorian age, they had a death's head, two bones, a skull and crossbones, basically. That was their emblem, banner over it, death and glory. Oh, okay. That's good Christian stuff right there. That's St. Paul right there. That's what you get. Earthen vessels being killed because this transcendent power of Jesus Christ is evident in the not us building a kingdom out of ourselves. Now, you say, well, what if it happened accidentally? Knock yourself, fine. We have to be warned that, that success, say if 140 people showed up in half a year here, and excitement started to sweep the city about the, the vibrant preaching, because that's what it is. We'd have to watch ourselves lest accidental success stumbled us down a flight of stairs. We've got to be ready for the temptation that you might say inadvertently that an earthly kingdom may have given you. It's not wrong to be a beautiful woman. You say, where did that come from? Well, I just decided I needed to preach against beautiful women. No, it's not wrong to be a beautiful woman, but a beautiful woman needs to know the effect her beauty has. You need to know the effect success of a church institution might have. There's nothing wrong with the success, but if we live for it, and then we cling to it and put a veil over everybody's mind so they don't see that the glory is fading, because everything that we touch that becomes material fades. It is mortal. Our bodies are dying. Everything in this world, you know me, you know my middle name is futility. It's what I am. I'm a, I'm, I, am, I welcome it, but I also know that a lot of people don't like the feeling. But this is the opportunity of the glory of Christ to shine in you. Walking right up to death. Right up, because we're all going to. You get to walk right up to death. And your relationship with Jesus Christ and the true kingdom within you knows that the glory that is given stands across that death as well as on this side of the death. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith as he who wrote, I believed and so I spoke, we too believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. We look at death 
with as a surety about the glory that is to be revealed. And it's absolute. We, we just believe in it. And all of us have that. But I know Christians who can't face death in anyone very easily. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. There is this, the burden of the real Christian life is that it is not trying to satisfy itself with a puffed up, transcendent, mortality we're trying to be changed by Jesus Christ that our mortality doesn't bother us and we do not lose heart because there is a shared experience right who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also and bring us with you into his presence as the grace extends to more and more people there's more and more thanksgiving to the glory of God so we do not lose heart. Where is your excitement, your satisfaction, your encouragement? You know some real Christians. You know some real Christians. There could be this church, other churches. Those are the people. The grace having been revealed to them. All of us going to be brought into his presence. We're thankful for those real believers that's the thing that gives us heart. Not the thing that everybody would like to build their particular version of Christianity into. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed every day. So, that's your responsibility. That's the ministry Paul has. He's got an, an internal kingdom of God that he's represented in the face of Christ. He wants each of you to look at it instead of picking your which splendor you're going to try to convince yourself isn't fading. And all you're left with is your physical form, and it's wasting away too. Everything is subject to futility, except our inner nature. That's where the empire of God, that's where you can spend your days building something that will not be denied in the afterlife. Everything you draw closer to Jesus Christ in, you can grasp your pudgy little fingers around it and take it into glory. You can take that with you. You can't take your wife with you. You can't take your money. You can't take your earthly greatness in the kingdom of God. But... You can take this, our inner nature, who your soul is. What has your soul become? Are you a silly, you know, there are Christians out there that their kids know so well that mom and dad's Christianity is a silly representation of something that might or not be real, but it's just a silly representation. That's what a fading, squinting veiled splendor does to us. Children know it's not real. We want an inner nature renewed for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory 
beyond all comparison. The phrase, the eternal weight of glory. Do you see where the glory is? Are you happy to just go, no, no, I'll go to Disneyland. You know what I think of Disneyland. But there's a castle there. Yeah, you know the castle. It's made out of chicken wire and concrete. And only if a little girl, no offense little girls, only if a little girl squints or dreams of castles and is high on, you know, too much sugar from a pop she just had walking into the park. She sees the castle and she believes it's just chicken wire and concrete. That's all Christendom is. Chicken wire and concrete. We have an eternal weight of glory. Is that what it is? Do you want the chicken wire and concrete version? Now you say, well, why would anybody? Evan sounds convincing. I believe you. I trust you. Because you don't have a tie. You seem like a regular guy. What... Say you grant this is true. But what's making me pick the veil? I've had this, you know, I got to this point in the sermon prep and I was going, you know, I've had this conversation a few times this week. People pick religion that you can see that grows and fills the whole earth because their own faith is inadequate and they need to be standing in a really big group of people who claim the same things they do and have a lot of money to spend that shows that they actually have the power in the faith that they claim and have an us and them mentality against others who hold a different view maybe only slightly different because the other temples that are built, you've got to fight against those because that, that hinders your faith. Faith is the issue. Do you believe? Do you believe if there was no all souls, there was no bridge Bible, there was no real life, there was no Trinity reform, no place to go in town with other believers, and you got stationed whatever town it is, Wook, Iowa, which is my standard choice, Wook, Iowa, and there are no believing churches, not a single believer anywhere, Where's your faith? Where's your hope? Where's your idea of what it's all about? Do you still have the eternal weight of glory beyond comparison? It's easier for you to believe when others share the belief. But that shouldn't be moving you from doubting and unbelief into belief because there's ten more people standing around you. That's mob thinking, right? Nobody wants to lynch the guy, but everybody together wants to lynch the guy. Are we that way with our Christianity? If it's a big enough group, oh, I had such an experience with Jesus at the what are they, the creation fest down at the gorge. Oh. The eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison is yours every day because you're choosing to look at Jesus Christ not look at these fading splendors. Because, verse 18, we look not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's sort of like kicking you while you're down. It says, oh, I didn't, boy, this sure seems, uh, he's not letting you have any of it. I mean, if it happens accidentally, God bless you. If you happen to be beautiful, wonderful. If you happen to be wealthy, great. If your church happens to be successful, God bless you. It didn't happen here, but, you know, good to know it can happen to good people. But if I start to think that the seen things are not anything but transient, and by transient we mean fading, you can't put together an institution beginning to think that the American democracy is a flawed concept. Oh, nice, get a good run. Some good things, but you're going to need to go, oh my gosh, look what we did to ourselves. Governor of Texas is recommending we have a constitutional convention so we can fix some of the flat tires on this thing. And everyone's going, yes. Everything fades. You can't have a perfect idea. Nothing is utopia. Utopia means no place. And everything is transient. When it's seen, are you building? Because are you building the eternal things? And if he's building the eternal things, it has to be the unseen things. You have to be personally looking for the face of Jesus Christ. Because the church shouldn't think it can give that to you. If you have a mortal kingdom, it will die. And you have to ask yourself, am I experiencing what its death will look like? In my children, in my friends, in my company of believers, in my denomination? There are people standing around in their denominations all over the world going, what happened? We got lesbian bishops. How did we get lesbian bishops? I mean, wasn't there Jesus Christ at the beginning? And the apostles? And sure, Henry VIII was a little bit of a problem. But it was still a believing church. And now we have lesbian bishops. My nephew-in-law, who's a curate in a small church in southern England, and hoping to move on to vicar, because you get to move up the ranks, he's got to think very long and hard about what he applies for in the Church of England, because there are so many liberal women bishops that will hate his viewpoints and will not give him a job. A believing Christian man devoted to the work of the Church of England. How do we get there? Well, because you wanted to believe in the seen things. Let's put something up, call it the church, and watch it fade. Watch it die right in front of us. What do you expect it to do? You know that when you, every once in a while, a mother might have a moment of reality about, you know, if I bring a child into the world, it is going to die. Yes, that's what happens. Eventually, it dies. The thing you loved so much, it will die. You married somebody, and you're either going to be holding their hand on their deathbed, or they're going to be holding your hand on your deathbed, that's what happens to mortal things. 
What do you want your church to look like in death? I was thinking right at the end there about how the Russians used to have the body of Lenin laid out there in Red Square someplace, permanently, miraculously embalmed and kept fresh. It's kind of creepy. A friend of mine, Ron Huggins, put something on Facebook this week. He was in something in Austria where they had the bodies of the old saints, old bishops, lying in glassed-in things, rotted completely, but they had just let them completely dressed, rot in front of your eyes. So we're like, let's be proud of this. Matter of fact, ever get into an argument with somebody about, you know, their dependence on the history of the church, and they're using the history and dying and death and fading splendor as a positive argument. That makes us more important. We've had so much, we've died so long. Things that are unseen are eternal. I would encourage you to consider that phrase earlier that says, We all with unveiled face. Consider what veils you may have on. Consider looking for the, glory, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what will transform you into Christ's likeness, which is what the transcendent power is to be matched against your earthly rot. I'm 61. I'm not holding up real well. I need to see Jesus Christ so that what ministry I have ends up being People going, that shouldn't be given his physical condition. That's why I have bad habits. I want to prove how mortal I am. Let's look for Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your son, your real kingdom, what he pointed us to. Keep us from being fools. In your son's name, amen.